الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله All praise is due to God and may God's peace and blessings be on His last Prophet Muhammad and on all the Prophets who have been sent by God to mankind. Uh, the purpose of today's presentation is to bring to you something of an understanding of the Arabian culture. I know a number of you have been here for some time working and uh, you have not had any kind of opportunity to be exposed to any kind of uh, sessions, orientation type sessions which would give you some kind of a background as to the people and the culture. I mean what you know of it is basically what you have gained from just basic day-to-day -day contact. But what happens is that it's very easy for us to misunderstand the practices of people if we don't understand what's behind those practices. You know, why a person does this, why a person does that. If we don't really understand what is the rationale behind it, then we tend to judge it according to our own cultural background. Now, I'm from Canada and I've been over here for you know a number of years and I know when I first came over here uh, I was somewhat perplexed at some of the uh, cultural habits and practices of the people here and it took me a while to get used to it but because of the fact that I uh, went into a course of study I studied at the university here I'm graduate masters in Islamic studies from the universities of the kingdom here and that gave me the kind of insight which enabled me to understand you know something of the culture the history and the people uh, and the the uh, and in, in that way it also enabled me to help others you know I have um, I work with the Air Force headquarters in Riyadh the, uh, and uh, I go from different bases uh, one base to another base uh, at various points in the in, in every month to help in the process of orientation, of giving people a background, you know, English-speaking people a background as to the culture of Arabia, the culture and practices of Arabia. And um, this, the purpose of this is really to help you all who are here visiting this country, working in the country, uh, better understand the people to, to make your own dealings with them easier because when you can understand why a person is doing what they're doing then it's easier to get along with them it's easier to to let certain things slide which normally you know you would take as offensive etc and similarly uh, it, it's also a way and or an opportunity for the people of this country you know through me to bring to you an understanding of their culture which to a large degree in the west you know uh, or western oriented countries have been distorted you know a, a lot of people come I've sat and talked with many people with no end of misunderstandings you know misconceptions about the culture and the people of this region so the purpose as I said was to give you some insight and to give you an opportunity also to share with me discuss with me uh, your own experiences things that you know don't quite add up for you things that you'd like to get certain clarity on this is what I'm here for also uh, and please don't feel 
in any way shy about asking anything. You know, whatever I have the information for, I'll give you. If I don't have the information, I'll tell you. Uh, first thing, when we talk about Arabian culture, it's important to understand who the Arabs are. One, the Arabs are a Semitic people, fundamentally indigenous to the Arabian Peninsula. This is the basic definition of who the Arabs are. Semitic people, indigenous to the Arabian Peninsula. So, that for one tells us that it is impossible for an Arab to be an anti-Semite. You see, we hear if somebody opposes Israel, he is usually branded in the West as an anti-Semite. If he does, you know, if he's against America supporting Israel, maintaining Israel's existence, he's branded, no matter what his background, he's branded as an anti-Semite. But it is impossible for an Arab to be an anti-Semite because he is a Semite himself. He is from the Semitic people. So that's the first thing I just wanted to clarify, you know, as I'm passing. However, today when we talk about Arabs, it includes all people who speak Arabic as their mother tongue. And this includes Christians. Christians, and there are many Arabs in Egypt, in Palestine, in Jordan, Syria, in Lebanon, who are Christians and Arabs. So, normally people tend to tend to put Arab and Muslim together as one and the same thing. However, in fact it is not. Actually, this definition of those who speak Arabic, it excludes only one group. And that is the Jews. You also have Jews who speak Arabic. In Yemen, in North Africa, in, in uh, what is now known as Israel, and in other parts of the Arab world, you find Jews whose mother tongue is Arabic. However, they have excluded themselves from the general category of Arabs. It is not the Arabs who decided, listen, Arabs includes everybody but Jews. No, Jews excluded themselves from that general category. And what you find is that many of the Arabic people who you now uh, know in Egypt, in Sudan, in North Africa, Algeria, Tunisia, etc. These people did not originally speak Arabic. Their language, they all had indigenous languages in their areas, whether it was Berber in North Africa or you know, Coptic languages in uh, Egypt and the Sudan. However, when Islam spread to that region, the people in order to be able to communicate with the administration of the areas began to take up certain Arabic terms just as whilst you were here you know if you have to go into town or deal with the, the people here to some degree you're going to pick up one little word here or there shukran or something like this you pick up a few little words here and there what happens that in time those peoples in taking up words those the words increased into the languages until the languages evolved and turned over into Arabic now, Arabia refers to the Arabian Peninsula, which according to the Arabs, they refer to it as Jazeera al-Arab, or 
the island of the Arabs. This is the largest peninsula in the world, approximately one million square miles. And for, just to put it in context for Americans, it is about the same size as continental America east of the Mississippi. If we take everything east of the Mississippi, add that all together, that's equivalent in, uh, in uh, area to the Arabian Peninsula. To understand Arabia, we have to look to some degree at the early history. And the early history is generally divided into two sections. The pre-Islamic period, the pre-Islamic period, which is referred to as the period of Jahiliyyah or the period of ignorance, and the Islamic period which came in the 6th century from the 6th century onward. In the pre-Islamic period, we find that the peoples of Arabia traced their origin to two main uh, ancestors. Those of the south in Yemen, they traced their origin to an individual by the name of Qahtan, who in the Bible is referred to as Joktan. And the northern Arabians traced their ancestry through Adnan. And uh, Adnan and his descendants some, uh, were mixed with uh, Ishmael, the son of Abraham, who now becomes sort of like the father of the Arabs in general. So again, when you look at who the Jews are, being the descendants of Isaac, what you find is that the Jews and Arabs are actually brothers. They come from the same family tree. Ishmael being the father of the Arabs and Isaac being the father of the Jews. Now, Arabia in ancient times was of importance to the Middle East or the world uh, for two main economic uh, products. The two were products of two trees which grew in South Yemen. Frankincense, which was burned as a fragrance in pagan religious rituals, and myrrh, which was used in cosmetics and embalming the dead. These are the main two products of this region. And it was taken out into uh, the, the rest of the Middle East, into Europe, uh, into Asia, and, and, and this was the particular significant economic significance of this area. And those of us who are from uh, Christian backgrounds who recall the story of uh, Jesus and Jesus' birth, uh, we know about the three wise men who were bringing, they were riding camels, and they were bringing, you know, amongst the, the gifts they brought was frankincense and myrrh. It was coming from this area. The period of Jahiliya was noted for feuds. You had the people of Arabia were, were in, in, in various tribes, which would involve themselves in feuds over very simple uh, issues which would last for generations. The center of worship of this area was Mecca, which is to the north of this area, Mecca. And there in Mecca was a structure known in Arabic as the Kaaba. Kaaba literally means cube. And I'm sure you've seen some pictures, whether it's on television or photographs, you know, in, in magazines or whatever, of Mecca with that black cube where people are bowed down in worship around it. Now, this object is in fact, according to Arabic tradition, a house of worship, the first house of worship, which was built by Prophet Abraham 
and Ishmael when Prophet Abraham left his wife Hagar here in Mecca with his and son Ishmael he came back and the, the two of them later built what is known, known as the Kaaba being the first house of worship and it was dedicated to the worship of one God which was the God known in the traditions of Moses and the prophets of Israel however in time uh, idolatry was introduced and the, base, the major tribes of Arabia they all put their idols around the Kaaba so the Kaaba itself became the center of idolatry in Arabia people would make pilgrimage there but for worship of idols the idea and the concept of the term Allah which means one God it remained amongst the people however they worshipped gods as intermediaries whether they built them with their own hands or whatever they worshipped them as intermediaries between themselves and the one God Christianity and Judaism also existed in the Arabian Peninsula in the area of Najran which is not too far from here was a very large Christian community and in the south in Yemen was a very large Jewish community in the 6th century after the time of Christ a, a South Yemenese king by the name of Lu Nuwas accepted or converted to Judaism and ruled that whole area of South Yemen and in fact there was a, 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 an incident which took place between the king this Lu Nuwas of Yemen and the Christians of Najran in that he attempted to forcibly convert them to Judaism they refused and a number of them were killed they, a, a pit of fire according to the tradition a pit was dug and, and it was filled with uh, fire and those people or Christians of Najran who refused were thrown into this pit and this incident is recorded in the Quran which is known as the, the book of revelations which Muslims follow in the 80, 85th chapter verses 4 to 8 it commemorates or honors those Christians who died for their faith the martyrs of Najran now from the 6th century onwards 6th century being the time in which uh, Muhammad the Prophet Muhammad may God's peace and blessings be upon him and on all the prophets was born in Mecca and uh, at the age of 40 in 612 he began to receive revelation by the time of his death in 636 Islam had spread all over Arabia the whole of Arabia had become uh, or had accepted Islam and what we have to understand is that primarily uh, Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad did not claim that he was bringing a new religion the religion of Islam that you know of it means fundamentally submission to the will of God this is what the Arabic word means submission, Islam means submission to the will of God and according to his teachings it was the same as what was taught by Jesus by Moses, by Abraham, by Adam submission to the will of God and one who submits to the will of God is called in Arabic a Muslim in English normally when we describe a person uh, you know in terms of a particular religion or a place we add a suffix you know from Christianity you get Christians so from Islam you sort of ex expect Islamians or something like this however in Arabic 
they put a prefix to indicate that relationship. Just as you know the term jihad, commonly explained to mean a holy war, though in Islam there really is no such thing as a holy war. I mean, this is something we can look at at another point. But just for namesake, we say jihad, the person who fights jihad is called a mujahid. Have you heard of the mujahideen in Afghanistan? I'm sure you've heard this term used. So you see that a prefix is put on the word to indicate one who is related to this particular act or place, etc. So this is why the term Islam and Muslim, Islam meaning submission to the will of God, Muslim being one who submits to the will of God. And because of this, uh, Muslims are particular, very particular about uh, being called Mohammedans, you know, which you may find in a number of, especially the older texts, books which were written 20, 30 years ago, Mohammedans, this term being used, uh, they find it very objectionable because Mohammedans somehow implies the worship of Muhammad or the taking of Muhammad as some kind of intercessor or intermediary, etc. Where in fact, according to Islamic teachings, he is not an intercessor. No one worships him. He was only looked at as a messenger of God who brought a message. A message which was the same message of previous prophets. So, that term is rejected. Similarly, Muhammadanism is not acceptable. It is Islam and Muslim. Now, the term Saudi Arabia or officially the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It, is, it takes its name after King Abdulaziz Al Saud who established the Kingdom in 1932. Uh, his family name being Saud, it became known as Saudi Arabia. The flag that you see, the green flag, has certain, you see, squiggly white lines on it which in fact is Arabic calligraphy expressing the declaration of faith of Muslims La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah which means there is no God but Allah the one God and Muhammad is a messenger of Allah what is underneath it is the sword I know when you see the sword you think the sword is what they use to chop off the heads every Friday right uh, but again the sword is not specifically you know dealing with that issue although it is a part of it all the sword represents the force which must be behind the faith for that faith to be become real, to become established as a force in a land. So it's a force which supports the faith, which also is the force of justice, to, to, to establish the justice which the faith calls to. Uh, of course you realize that all the neighboring countries are all what they call Arab nations, whether it's to the north you have Iraq and Jordan, to the east you have the countries of Bahrain, the United Arabic Emirates, uh, Oman, and uh, to the west across the waters you find Sudan, Egypt, etc. Uh, geographically the country is usually divided up into five major regions. The eastern coastline is called the Hejaz and this area called Asir, they're all sort of connected and they're all east of a chain of mountains which are called Hejaz mountains. And Hejaz itself means a border. So the mountains form a natural border between East Arabia and the West of Arabia. Najd, the area where the capital of Arabia is, Riyadh, is called Najd because Najd actually means a plateau. And if any of you ever drive to Nejd, if you have any cause to drive there, I know it's very hot and I'm sure 
you probably wouldn't want to give up the uh, weather here for Riyadh but if if you ever get there you find that you have to go up a very steep embankment to get up there and the whole of Riyadh is on a plateau which is referred to as the Nejd the eastern region called the Mantika Sharqiya uh, is the area where most of the oil is being exploited now the northern region called Mantika Shamaliya is the area where you find most of the nomads, people who still live on the desert without any settled homes. And the other major area, the two great deserts, to the north called the Nufud, and Nufud means sand dunes, and to the south called the Rub al-Khali, which means the empty quarter. And this area, Rub al-Khali, which they have found a, a, a number of uh, oil deposits, this area has the largest concentration of sand of any deserts in the world. And the sand dunes there reach over a thousand feet high. Between the two, there's an area called Dahna of deserts, which join, a strip of deserts which join the north region to the south. Now, in terms of the modern history of, of Arabia, Saudi Arabia, uh, with the rise of Islam in the 7th century, and Islam spread from Arabia across North Africa down into the Sudan uh, right across into Spain southern France uh, Sicily southern Italy uh, up north into Lebanon what is what used to be known as Asia Minor which is now Turkey and across into southern Russia into China uh, we find uh, the Muslim world was ruled at first from Medina which is in that area of Hijaz we had two major cities there Mecca and Medina, Mecca being the place where the Prophet was born but in the course of calling to his teachings, his message he was driven out from there and moved north to the city known as Medina where he established himself and Islam spread and from there it spread and over to the rest of Arabia he was also buried there uh, this city was the center or capital of the, the Islamic state or empire in the early stages uh, following that it shifted to Damascus which is now in Syria, then on to Baghdad, now in Iraq. And you find that this Muslim empire, which spread all the way over to the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, this Muslim empire were ruled by a variety of different people. They were not all Arabs. You find Syrians, you find Mesopotamians, you find Egyptians, Persians, and Turks ruled this uh, empire over this period of time. Now, during the uh, medieval to modern times, we find that the area of Hijaz and the area of Al-Hatta or the eastern region was under uh, Ottoman rule as well as, well as under Egyptian rule. And in the 18th century, a religious reformer by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, uh, who was educated outside of the country, came back in and recognized that the, a lot of distortions had taken place in the practice of the religion, started to call people back to practicing Islam in the pure form, uh, he may be identified, you know, in Western texts as being a fundamentalist of his time. I mean, in fact, there is no such thing as fundamentalism in Islam. It is just practicing, you know, Islam. It's either you're practicing Islam or you're not practicing Islam. Uh, and he called the people back to this practice. He was rejected by the people of his own town and he shifted to a town by the name of Dara'iya, which is now in the Riyadh area, where he linked up with the Amir of Dara'iyah, Amir being the governor. 
whose name was Muhammad ibn Saud and the two of them made a pact to spread this message of reform to the rest of Arabia and to establish it you know, under the rule of Islam and over the next hundred odd years you know, they, they, that movement spread it gained control over Arabia and uh, in 1932 as I mentioned the final establishment of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia took place Actually, rule was established in an earlier period, in the 19th century, it was established, but it was lost. And the, actually, the family of Saud, they had to leave Arabia, and when they left, they went and stayed in Kuwait. The Sabah family of Kuwait uh, took them in for almost 10 years. Before they came back in, took Riyadh, and from Riyadh, they took over the rest of Arabia. And this is the link that you may have been wondering why it is that there was such a close link between the Kuwaitis, and the Saudis, in that sense, that the Saudi Arabian Kingdom owes its uh, origin to a certain degree to the help which was given to them by the Kuwaiti Sabah family. So naturally, when that family was in need, in a time of difficulty, they sheltered the Kuwaiti Sabah family here, as well as Kuwaitis in general, uh, until the period of invasion was turned back. We know in the 1930s, uh, American geologists discovered oil in, the Easter, in Eastern Arabia and after World War II it began to be exploited and distributed uh, which then changed the whole face of Arabia and its importance on a world scale. Now in terms of the culture, because we're looking ultimately at Arabian culture, what you're going to find when you say culture we're talking about the arts, beliefs, social institutions and characteristics of a community, race or people. What you're going to find when you look into these arts and institutions, etc., here in Saudi Arabian uh, culture, about 85% of it owes its origin to Islam. And this is why if you ask an Arab of this area about something, why are you doing this or why are you doing that, you will find them talking about Islam. Not necessarily that they're trying to uh, convert you, like it's missionary work, every Muslim feels he has to convert anybody who talks to him. This is not the intent here, but it's just genuinely that behind the vast majority of the cultural practices here is the religion of Islam. This is what forms the foundation, which influences how people uh, act, you know, their institutions, how they deal with people, etc. And this is due to the fact that when Islam came, it did not erase all of the practices of the people that were here. What it did was the practices, which were good practices, in essence, it accepted, modified to a certain degree if the intentions behind them were incorrect. Those practices which were harmful, it prohibited or modified in such a way as they would become beneficial. <coughs> and just to give you some example, I mean the Arabs here are generally noted for their hospitality and generosity. This is the general... Uh, image of the people here in the sense that you will find people will invite you into their homes uh, you know they will feed you uh, well they will you know this is a general attitude uh, in terms of how Arabs deal with people this is, this is something which was from pre-Islamic times they were known for their generosity and this is a product also of the desert nomad life where generosity and hospitality had a, a great importance to a person living on the desert 
who, you know, uh, would come to visit other people. It became very important to show generosity, to look after those who were living this type of lifestyle. However, when, uh, what, what happened is that this generosity or hospitality was in ancient Arabs a source of personal pride. You know, they would compete with each other in generosity and hospitality, you know, out of personal pride for their tribe or their family or whatever. Whatever, what happened when Islam came is that it removed this issue of pride, personal pride, and made it an act of worship, where the Prophet, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, was quoted as saying that one who does not treat his guest, his guest honorably with generosity is not a true follower of Islam. So, the act of generosity now became an act, a religious act. You found, for example, here that there were many, many different forms of marriage. Among them was polygamy, unrestricted polygamy. And, as well, temporary marriage, in Arabic known as muta. When Islam came, the temporary marriage factor was cancelled. It was disallowed. Temporary marriage for a Muslim to marry, uh, setting a period of time. We're going to get married for one day, one week, one month, one year. This is prohibited. It became prohibited amongst Muslims. Also, the unrestricted polygamy was restricted. So, though people generally speaking tend to identify polygamy with Islam, like Muslims are the people with many wives, in fact, Islam modified an existing institution which was not common only to the Arabs but to people around the whole world. Polygamy was in practice in the vast majority of places in the world. What Islam did was it limited it. The polygamy was a man being able to marry a maximum of four wives at one time. Prior to that a woman could have as many husbands. And a man could have as many wives. This was limited now to what is called polygyny. That is a man having a number of wives. Maximum being four. Which was, according to biblical tradition, the number of wives of Prophet Jacob. Uh, you find also alcohol is prohibited. And it is prohibited based on Islamic teachings. The people here took alcohol, took intoxicants. And Islam recognizes it as being harmful to individuals as well as society and prohibited it across the board. In the alcohol and any form of intoxicant. Pork. Pork was prohibited based on Islam being a part of the same tradition of Moses and the prophets before. Moses is in Mosaic law that pork was prohibited based on divine revelation, similarly it is prohibited here. This was the practice of Jesus, this was the practice of Moses, Abraham, etc. So, it was prohibited here from a religious point of view. Not that the pig is considered to be a prohibited animal, because if you want to see a pig, I mean, maybe some of you have been away from America or Philippines for a long time, you haven't seen a pig, you want to see a pig again, you can go to the zoo. They have pigs in the zoo. In Riyadh, in Taif, they have pigs there in the zoo for people who would like to see what a pig looks like. However, it's not kept here, it's not raised here because people don't eat pigs, so it's not an economic, uh, it's not viable economically, so you will not find it. 
In the case of dress, you find women covering themselves, men generally speaking wearing a loose garment which is called a thobe, and this is in keeping with the Islamic principles of modesty. You find along with this dress uh, headscarf called a ghutra or shimar. This headscarf has cultural origins in that the man of the desert needed something to cover his head to keep the sun off his head. Otherwise he would get sunstroke. So he had a scarf which he covered his head with. The colors are cultural. Those you find in Arabia tend to use black, red and white or just white. Also in Jordan you find they use black and white. In Syria they are using just white. In Yemen they are using a multiplicity of colors. You know, this is just, that has no special significance. Also you have uh, dust storms. On the desert you get, you know, sandstorms. Again, the scarf is handy, you put it across your face, stops, it becomes like a mask, gas mask, pre preventing uh, these particles from entering into your system. You find worn on top of it a black cord, known as the iqal. This black cord was what is known as a hobbling cord. When the nomad got off his camel, he would bend the knee of the camel back because Though it looks like two cords, it's actually, when you open it up, it's one hoop, which is twisted over and forms a double, what looks like a double cord. This was now tied around the knee of the camel. And the importance of this was that when you tied the knee of the camel, the camel couldn't run away. He would hop. So if you got off, you tied his knee, you turned your back, he started to move, you could easily catch him and bring him back. And of course, on the desert, that's critical. You get off your camel, he takes off, that's your life. Right? I mean, in American tradition, cowboy tradition, the uh, cowboy will normally tie the reins of his horse to the tree. Well, of course, on the desert, you don't have too many trees. So, again, the hobbling cord became critical. And, of course, you're riding the camel in the wind. Your scarf's going to be blown off. How do you keep your scarf on your head? You take the hobbling cord and hold it onto your head. Of course, you're going to ask now, well... We see these people wearing these scarves and these hobbling cords driving their Mercedes-Benz. You know, what's the need? Well, this is like Texan tradition of wearing his 10-gallon hat. He's driving his, his uh, Mercedes, you know, Texas being the oil-rich state. But he's still drives, wearing his 10-gallon hat and his cowboy boots. Where the, cow, where the cows and where the horses, right? So it's tradition. People tend to hang on to it. As I said, not every tradition is of Islamic origin. Some of it is just <coughs> which came, something which came out of cultural necessity. Similarly, you find when you go into the homes, people eat on the floor. I mean, most of us coming from Western environments, we eat at tables and chairs, and it's a little strange to find people sitting, eating on the floor on rugs. And their chairs, instead of being chairs, they have cushions. But again, if you think back to the nomad existence, it's just not practical to be carrying around big you know, tables and chairs on the back of your camel. No, it's easier you have a rug which you roll out when you sit down. You know, you have cushions which, you, you, uh, which are empty normally. When you stop at a place, you fill it up with whatever is available. You know, and then you can rest on it. When you finish, you can empty it back out, put it back on your camel and keep moving. So it's that type of uh, furniture is suitable or, or suited to the nomadic life. And of course, people have carried on that tradition. It has no... Islamic origin to it.
the work week you're all familiar with here is Saturday through Wednesday. Of course, we're coming from an environment where we're used to the weekend being Saturday and Sunday. Now, this is related, of course, to the fact that Friday is the main day of prayers and an added day for the weekend, Thursday, was there. So it has religious origins. The other thing you find in terms of separation of the sexes, males one side, females one side, whether it's through education or in a home setting or whatever, you're going to, to visit most homes, Saudi homes, you're not going to sit down and get into a conversation with, the, with his wife. Your wife will go and sit with the other women and you will sit and discuss with the men. This is the norm. Now, this is based on Islamic tradition. And this tradition begins actually in the place of worship. If you go into any mosque, it is from Islamic tradition because of the mode of worship where people stand side by side touching each other, bowing and prostrating, that the men prayed together and the women prayed behind together. And this, if you think about it, if you're standing there to worship as a man, with a woman standing next to you, or in front of you bowing, prostrating, and uh, it, it, it doesn't make for concentration on God. So this was for practical reasons that separation uh, took place where the women prayed separately and behind the men, and the men prayed uh, separately. And from that separation, you find that it spilled over into the society as a whole. Now, as I mentioned, approximately 85% of the customs here are based on Islam. So, it does behoove us who are here to have some understanding of what Islam is about. And now, I'll just give you a brief introduction to what is the Islamic teaching. First, you need to understand that Islam, not like religion as we normally understand it in a Western environment, as being the personal affair of an individual, it is something which pervades the society as a whole. Because Islam and its teachings are comprehensive, all-encompassing. It, it, it deals with every aspect of a human being's life. So that is why you find that it is the law of the country. It affects all of the various things which take place in the country. So the country as a whole attempts to apply Islam as the law of the land, socially, politically, you know, economically. What we find here is free education from kindergarten to PhD for the citizens of the country. This is something which is available to every citizen. Anyone who comes from the outside to study here, education is free. And this is a result of the Islamic attitude towards education, that it is the right of every member of the society. Uh, you also find health care is free for citizens, again, from birth to death. Uh, and this is a reflection of the Islamic view in terms of, of health care. Similarly, housing for the average Saudi who wants to build a home, the government gives him approximately 100000 up to $100,000 loan, uh, interest-free, which he has 25 years to pay off in. So each person is afforded a means of owning their own home. Of course, to a large degree, we may say this, this is due to the fact that this is an oil-rich country. They can afford it. However, uh, when you go to some other countries, for example, like in Sudan, where 
they have declared Islamic law to be the law of the country in recent times, in the last couple of years. Free education there is also free. You know, uh, uh, medical care to, the, to a large degree is also free. They have, what, is, what, is, what is happening is that wherever the means exist, it is obligatory on a Muslim state to provide the basic necessities of food, clothing, and shelter for people. And health care included. And it's not a question of being having the economic means. To the degree that you have the means, it should be there. Because if education, for example, is not made free, it becomes a question of you having the money, then it means that a segment of the society will perpetually stay in a state of ignorance, un unable to rise in that society. Because education in general is a means by which a person may elevate himself from being you know, in the poorer sections of the society, the middle class or to upper sections, through education. So when you deny people, you say after a certain point you have to pay, then what you are in fact doing is making that education only available to those who have the means and those who tend to be uh, the richer elements of the society and th that way you spread the gap between the rich and the poor. And in Saudi Arabia, not everybody is rich, though we tend to think that they have a lot of money, everybody, you know, every Saudi's got a million dollars in his pocket, but in fact you have Saudis who are quite poor as well as Saudis who are rich. But education is available to each and every individual, so he has the means of getting out of whatever income bracket he was born into. Now, the religion of Islam itself is based on five pillars, what are known as the five pillars of faith. This is from the teachings of the Prophet himself. It's not something which people, you know, later on evolved and developed, but from the teachings of the Prophet, he identified the foundations of faith as five basic pillars, five principles. The first being that declaration of faith, which I mentioned before, that a person says there is no God but Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. When he says that, he automatically enters the faith. Very simple procedure. Following that, he is required to pray five times a day. I know you've heard the Adhan, the calling to prayer from the mosque, etc., which divides up the day and everybody is, in, is, is obliged, encouraged to worship at these points. Not that they only worship at these points, but these are the major points in the day to aid them to be conscious of God in between those points. Because worship is really for bringing, helping to develop God consciousness. So, a Muslim in general is encouraged to worship God at all times. However, a minimum, like, like this is the bottom line, the minimum which you should not go under is five times in the day. Uh, the third pillar is that of fasting. You know, of the month of Ramadan, many of you have been here, you see that Muslims fast after 30 days. That fast is a complete fast. It's not a fast in the sense of... Uh, some traditions where people give up meat or they give up some things. No, it's fast in the sense that you don't eat or drink or have any sexual relations during that period of time. But it's during the daylight hours, from dawn to sunset. Complete fast. And the goal of it is not torture of people. I mean, I know for us to think of fasting in North America 17 hours, you know, it sounds like torture. But what it's supposed to do is to help the individual develop control over the two, two of the basic urges which drive man. The urge for food to fill his stomach and the urge for sex. When we look at most of the crimes that are committed, violent crimes, etc., we're going to find that behind them is that same basic urge for food, meaning your economic situation, and sex. 
The fourth major principle, that of zakah, or compulsory charity, which is 2.5% of one's accumulated income, surplus, not your, your monthly check, but what you have saved, which you are not using over a period of a year. 2.5% of that is given to the needy, the poor, not to a person in the mosque, you know, a church leader or to an institution. It's given to poor people. And this is supposed to uh, reinforce in the minds of people that wealth is from God, a trust given to man, and that why some people have money and why others don't ultimately is due to the destiny of God. And we have a duty with money to help those who do not have money. So we have to share what God has given us with others. And in that way, we confirm our faith in God. That the faith is not just something which is said, but should be manifest in our actions. The last principle is that of Hajj, the pilgrimage you've all heard about once in a year. You know, Muslims congregate in Mecca uh, at least once in their lifetime. So that, you know, comprises the basic five pillars. Now, before I turn the situation over to you all to come back to me, you know, on some questions or comments, etc., I just want to mention a few very common misconceptions, clarify them, hopefully. The first is that Muslims are terrorists. Muslim Arab terrorists. These, two, these things seem to be synonymous in much of the Western-influenced world. However, let it be known that Islam prohibits what is known as terrorism. To put a bomb on an airplane, killing innocent women and children, is not sanctioned by Islam in any way. Such a person is considered a criminal, a sinner, punishable by God or by the state if he is caught. This is a major sin, taking innocent life. To fight against combatants, those who are fighting you, who have taken up arms against you, that is your right, that is your duty. But to kill those women, children, old people, etc., who are not involved in the fight, this is prohibited in Islam. So, though you may find some organizations which have taken this as a course of action, specifically those related to the, to the Palestinian-Israeli question, uh, who have taken this as a course of action, one you should remember, one, that many of those who are part of that organization are communists. Others are Christians, others are nominal Muslims. But as a Muslim, a practicing Muslim, there is no way to sanction terrorism. The second principle that Arabs or Muslims, are males, are mostly homosexuals. Because coming from Western tradition, we see these people walking around holding men, holding hands, normally in North American context, and probably in the Philippines too. If men walk around holding hands, we say that something is wrong here, right? And we judge people in accordingly. However, in this part of the world, it is not considered uh, sexual. There is no sexual implication behind a man holding another man's hand. Uh, in, as we shake hands in the West, the holding of hands is no, has no greater significance. It's only a, a show of friendship. It has no uh, sexual overtones. 
It's not to say that there are no homosexuals here now. Of course, there are homosexuals here. You know? Uh, uh, but, Islam does not sanction homosexuality. Nor does the law of this country, which is based on Islam. The death, the, the penalty for homosexuality, one who is involved in the act, caught in the act, uh, and one who, you know, from both sides, the doer and the one being done to, the law, the, the penalty is death. That's, so it is not sanctioned. But it doesn't mean when a law, even as severe as that may be, it doesn't mean that there are not going to be people to break the law. Because whatever laws you set up, no matter how good they may be, you've got people who have chosen to live above the law or beyond the law. The third principle or misconception is that Islam was spread by the sword. The largest Muslim country, Indonesia, 150 million Muslims, never saw a single Muslim soldier. The vast majority of people that we know now today as Muslims, whether in Africa or in India, etc., the vast majority of these people came into Islam without ever coming in contact with Muslim armies. I'm not saying that, that when Islam spread from, this, from Arabia, they did not, were not involved with a military struggle against the kingdoms of Rome, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the, the uh, Empire of, of India, Hindu empires, of course, they were involved in military struggle. So there was military struggle. But no one was forced to accept Islam. The idea of Islam being spread by this Arab on a camel with a sword in his right hand and the Quran in the left hand. You know, either you accept Islam or you lose your head. This is a false picture of the spread of Islam. And it's stated very clearly in the Quran that there is no compulsion in religion. One cannot compel anyone to become a Muslim. And the fact of that is that Islam ruled Spain for 700 years and much of the populace did not become Muslims. They remained Christians. Islam ruled India for a similar period of time, some 500 odd years. And the vast majority of the people did not become Muslims. They were not forced to become Muslims. Uh, the next principle is that of divorce. The general picture which is given for a Muslim when he wants to divorce his wife, he just tells her three times you're divorced, bam, it's all over. That's the general picture given. However, the fact is quite different. It's true that divorce is initiated by a man telling his wife, you are divorced. But there are conditions. One, he cannot pronounce that divorce if the woman is in her period, the menstrual period. Why? Because when a woman is in her menstrual period, you know, it affects her psychologically. The biological changes in her body affects her oftentimes psych psychologically. She becomes cranky, whatever. Those of us who are married, you know, you can, you can follow the cycle, you know, from month to month, you know, how your wife changes in moods, you know. It's, it's something fairly obvious. Uh, so, we are prohibited from pronouncing divorce at that point because the reason why you may be pronouncing it is because of that change in her uh, psych psychology which you know creates friction and there you're ending up pr pronouncing divorce over this so it's prohibited you cannot do so at that time secondly in this in the time in the interval between periods if one has had sexual relations with his wife he cannot pronounce 
divorced in that interval. He has to wait, one, until she's from her, out of her period, and two, she enters into a period in which he has not had sexual uh, relations with her. Then he can pronounce. And if he approaches her sexually, the pronouncement is cancelled. So it's not just a simple case, as I said, of you're divorced three times, it's all over, you know, you go your way, she goes her way. Now, I should add, add though, that once the three months, because you have to wait over a three month cycle, after the pronouncement is made, she, you wait until she has her menstrual period, another period, and a third period. At the end of that third period, now the divorce becomes final. During that three month span of time, you have to remain living together. In other words, to give you an opportunity to, to, to be certain that this is what you really want to do. And usually families will get involved in the process. It's not just left up to you too. You know, the father and mother of the, the girl will come and try and talk to you. And your parents will talk to her. And their parents will talk to each other. And, you know, it's not just a one-on-one type of situation. The families usually get involved in this process. And when the period is over, the divorce is over. There's no long drawn out court battle, you know, where you wash your dirty linen in public, you know, she did this to me and he did that to me and he was with this girl and you were that man and no. Of course it is simple. But the Islamic philosophy is that if you entered into marriage by merely saying, I do, why should it be difficult for you to come out by saying, I don't? Right? That is the philosophy. Of course, it's not the same. But in spite of the fact that it's so easy to come out in that general sense, still the rate of divorce due to the family and social pressures which encourage families to stay together is very low. In spite of the ease that is there, it is very low. The uh, last major principle is that of the oppression of women. There's a general impression given that Muslim women are oppressed. They're covered up. In a lot of the places where I've been, they're referred to as uh, BMOs, black moving objects, you know. <laughs> because of this, uh, uh, this uh, circumstance, right? And the tendency is to think of them because they're covered in this fashion as being oppressed, they're second class citizens, they got to ride on the back of the bus, and, you know, all these other things, right? And, and, and this is the general impression that we get. However, the, the philosophy behind the covering of the woman is one of protection of the woman. This is a fundamental philosophy. Not that uh, Muslims look at her as being the source of evil because she was the one who got Adam to eat from the tree. No. Because in Islam, Islamic teachings, Adam was responsible. He was the head of the family. He bears the, bunt, the brunt of the responsibility so Eve is not considered you know that sinful devil influence you know type of individual who you have to you know watch out for who is now punished with uh, uh, the pains of childbirth for that evil act that she did no in Islamic teachings this is not the case she is looked at as a weaker link in the society she and children women and children looked as a weaker link not that they are second class, but the realities of the woman. The top 100 yard Olympics female sprinter is slower 
than the top high school American sprinter, male. There is a big difference physically. I'm sure I don't have to convince you. I know if there's some women lives here, I might have to get into an argument about this issue. But for men, it's fairly obvious that women are weaker physically speaking than men. And this weakness means that whenever men and women mix together freely, women will suffer. You are familiar with the cases going on in the, in the military right now, in the Navy, where the officers had that party. And female officers were made to run a gauntlet where the men were ripping off their clothes on the way, fondling them. And now it's a big case. People are losing their positions, their jobs, being kicked out of the Navy, etc. over this issue. And this is not unique. It's not, a, it's not one incident. They did a survey, you know, two years ago in the army. And they found from the female general down to the female corporal, as, they, as one body, they claimed that they were under harassment. Women in the majority of the professions are in this uh, situation where they mix with men. Because it is the nature of man when he mixes with a woman to assert himself over that woman. It is part of his nature. Some people are able to control themselves and that assertion is limited. Many people are not. All you have to do is ask any female who has to go on the subway in rush hour in New York City, you know, what's it like? <laughs> she tell you. you know. And this is not a phenomenon only in America. This is a phenomenon around the world. Anywhere. If it happened here, it would be the same situation. This is the nature of men. So, the Islamic principle is that women are separated from the men to protect them from this harassment. So, education from grade 1 to PhD, separate education. In schools, they're separately educated. Of course, it is not a requirement that they have separate institutions. If you may find in some other Muslim countries where men and women attend the same universities, but there will be a separation in the classroom that the women will be on one side, the men will be on the other side. You know, as I said, it doesn't necessarily, or in the front or in the back, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, separate schools. If you have the means to do so, society decides to do it that way, then that is one of the methods. Similarly, you'll find here now women's banks. Women's banks, which men cannot enter. See, I know sometimes women here, they say, okay, there's these uh, video shops and... Uh, uh, tape shop, there's a big sign in there, women not allowed to enter. I said, what is this? You know, it reminds us of what's happening, used to happen in America, in the South, you know. But in fact, the reasoning for that is that these shops are usually quite small and quite crowded. Females coming into that situation would be then exposed to harassment. So, based on that, they have not allowed them to go in there. But they're not being allowed to go in there doesn't mean that they're second class. Because in the same way, men are not allowed to go into the women's branches of the banks. It doesn't mean that men are inferior to the women. This is just a process of maintaining uh, separation for the protection of the women. Furthermore, you'll have, in all the major cities, you have malls, shopping malls, which are restricted to women. Women alone can go there. Women alone working in there, women alone uh, shopping there. Maybe uh, they, they're limited here in Khamis Mashaykh, but in Riyadh, 
in Bahrain, in Jeddah, you have whole shopping malls which are restricted to women. Maybe as Westerners you don't know about it so, so much, but you ask the Saudis of the area, they'll tell you where they are, where it's only women. And this is based on the principle that for a woman to go, she wants to buy some panties and, and brassieres, you know, and the man is asking her what size, what... Yeah, for in the issue of modesty, you know, for, that, for the woman not to be put in that kind of situation, they have their own shopping areas also. That doesn't mean that they cannot also go into shopping areas where men are, but for those who prefer to, to be in an area where they're only dealing with women, these uh, institutions have also been set up. And in terms of riding on the back of the bus, you know, uh, truly, yes, the buses, you have a section in the back where the women ride. But if you were here when buses were first introduced, women rode in the front of the bus. They put a place in the front of the bus. But the men had to pass through the front to get to the back. So they found that even though the women were separated from the men in the front, that harassment was taking place. So what they decided to do was to put a separate section for the women in the back where they go in and they will pay the money on trust. They pay for the, fee, for the bus ride and stay in the back for their own protection. This was the purpose. It was not decided, you know, where we think in terms of an American context where the back of the bus, you know, meant in fact second class status. This is not the case here. So, these are the main ones which came to my mind based on things that have been said to me in the past. And I'm sure you probably have some other questions and things you'd like to raise. But uh, before I turn it over to you, I would like to clarify, especially for those of you fra from a North American background, where you hear the name Farrakhan associated with Islam and also Elijah Muhammad. I would just like you to know that these two individuals have nothing at all to do with Islam. Farrakhan may claim he is a Muslim, but the teachings that he proposes, that he follows, have nothing at all to do with Islam. They are racist in origin and do not comply with the fundamental concepts of God and man. They involve belief that God became carnate in the form of the teacher of Elijah, whose name was Fard Muhammad. You know, they believe, believe that he was God incarnate on earth, which is forbidden. Taught an idea, a concept which is totally rejected by Islam. You know, as well as a number of other concepts. I just wanted to make that clear. Malcolm X, in the latter part of his life, prior to his death, when he was kicked out of Elijah's organization, his sister, who had become an Orthodox Muslim, paid for him to go and make Hajj. On his way to making Hajj, he found, you know, from, uh, I think it was Algeria or Morocco, the pilot, who was a Muslim, looked white, like a North American, of European origin, and he was himself quite shocked from the very beginning. When he got to Mecca and found Muslims of all colors, shades, shapes, sizes, etc., it became clear to him that what he had gotten of the teachings of Elijah, which taught that black people were gods and white people were devils, you know, reverse racism, uh, that this was false. When he came back to America, he came back to America understanding what true Islam was. And unfortunately, when he came back, he was then blanked out of the media. We didn't hear about him anymore, and within six months, he was assassinated. But he had made the transition to what is known as Orthodox Islam. 
Okay. Uh, now I'd like to turn it over to you. And before giving you the opportunity, I'd just like to make one more point. And that is, wherever you get the opportunity to visit in the homes of the people here, to meet the families, let your families meet their families, you know, to, to see something of the culture and the people, it behooves you to take advantage of it. Do not think that because somebody is inviting you to their home and expressing generosity, that the hidden agenda behind all that is to try to convert you. Remember that it is fundamentally a part of the people and of the religion for people to be hospitable. You are the guests in this country and it is natural for them to invite you to be hospitable towards you. Uh, what you don't want to talk about, you don't have to talk about. What you would like to talk about, you can talk about. You can talk about anything you want to talk about. There are no you know, forbidden topics in that sense. Also, even the issue of a mosque. I know many people have been told that you cannot enter a mosque. Prohibited. Don't even go near it. But in fact, it is not prohibited. Of course, if you enter the mosque, when it's time for prayer, people will assume that you are a Muslim. So when they are going to prayer and you're standing back, they're going to assume something is wrong with you. So you're going to get hassled as to why you didn't join the prayer and you have to go through a series of explanations, etc. So it is better if you would like to see the inside of a mosque, what does it look like? It's not a hidden sanctum. You know, like the Masons, they got a special hall, you got to pass the 33rd degree before you can get inside. No. They, the, the mosque is an open area. Anybody can go inside and see. You know, it's good. Go and see it. So you know, you've gone back out of here and there was nothing hidden from you. Same thing with the Quran. You hear about it. It's the book of the Muslims. It's available. Get one. Look at it. Read it. You know, it's not to say I'm telling you this so you can convert. No. Just read it so you're ready. You, you have an idea what is inside of it. It's not a hidden book. It's not a secret book. You know, non-Muslims are not allowed to touch it. They can't read it. So, so. No. You can get it in the market they have some centers here in the religious affairs office here they will have some copies hopefully in English I'll, I, I assume they do have them you know you can borrow one you want to have a look at it to see what it's saying have an idea you know you're here take advantage of the situation you know learn something of the culture learn something of the people their ways their ideas etc because this will help you to understand and help you in your dealings with the people okay that's about all I had. You know, I leave it up to you all now. If you have any questions or any comments you'd like to make, anything on which I said, you felt you'd like to raise some questions about it or some other issues, you know, of uh, confusion that you'd like to get clarity on, please feel free. Uh, no topic is prohibited. You can talk and ask about anything you'd like that I have information on. Well, I don't know what the circle is because I haven't really been down. I'm coming down from Riyadh, the center of town. Well, they've gone beyond the bounds. That is incorrect. And if you 
were to report the incident to the people who are in charge of that organization, the, the, the moral police, and report the name of those people, then that issue could be taken up. Because really, it is beyond the bounds. They don't have the right to tell you to get away from here. If they're telling you to go to prayer, it's because they're thinking that you're a Muslim. That may happen, but if they're telling you go away, they don't have the right to tell you because you're sitting in, in an area, you know, uh, because it's time for prayer, you shouldn't be sitting there. Hmm. No, this is, this is extreme. This has gone, gone beyond the bounds of what is allowable legally as well as Islamically. In your case, right. And I'm sure, you know, that will happen. I know my mother is not a, uh, a Muslim, and um, uh, when I was uh, in Riyadh, you know, um, I was in, in the market one time with her and, um, you know, the mutawa came and wanted my mom to cover her face. <laughs> I had to try to explain to her, well, this is, you know, she's a non-Muslim, it's not a requirement, etc. But, you know, these are in an enthusiasm to try to maintain, you know, an Islamic identity. Some people have gone overboard and these are errors and, and uh, there have been cases where people have struck other people and they have been reported and been reprimanded. You know, or even lost their jobs in Riyadh, you know, because the, the community there have been informed and they are aware of what is required of them, you know, and what is actually in fact beyond the bounds. Uh, because both Mecca, you'll find that also for Medina. Both Mecca and Medina are cities where non-Muslims are not allowed to enter. Uh, this is, you know, like a restricted area. We all in every society have restricted areas. You know, whether it is an organization or whatever. You know, Islam is a complete system. This is a restricted area which had been restricted by the Prophet himself in, in order to try to establish a sanctuary. A sanctuary where only those people committed to that central and single ideal would Congregate. It is the place of pilgrimage to try to minimize the effects of, uh, you know, other cultures on this area. They have, they have, this law has been established from the time of the Prophet. However, you know, there are other areas, of course, you know, in the country. If you go into other Muslim countries, there's no such areas. This is only specific for Mecca and Medina. Huh? There's another reason for that, too. You've got to remember, at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, one of the
that ever happened to the city of Mecca again. And also in time, that time, they, uh, the Muslims, which they tried to starve them out, that's why Muhammad and a few of his followers went to Medina. A party of uh, delegates from Medina came, and the threat of their own life came down towards Mecca. They told Muhammad that, you know, we will assist you. Uh, I believe they call it Hansa. Okay? At that point, after about three days after that, they gave their Shahada, which is the Okay. After he did, after he did that, approximately three or four days later, he fled from the city of Mexico to Medina, and there again it became a sanctuary against the outer abuse of the pagans, of the Jews, and of the Christians, because those armies had risen up against him and tried to strike him down. Well, we understand a sanctuary, like you've got a place where you've got uh, wild deer and stuff like this. It's a sanctuary that. Like when you go down to the Red Sea, there are certain areas that you can't go out being a Christian. There are certain areas you can't go and uh, shoot birds. That's where you just can't do anything. And uh, they don't stand that because actually you can even add that in this area, in, in both Mecca and Medina, it is prohibited to, to kill birds or, you know, these, uh, or cut trees or, you know, this, there's a whole system there of, of sanctity. There's sanctity to that area, which even goes beyond the issue of people coming in. Any questions from the side or comments? Well, uh, the the belief is that the Sabbath, you know, because as I said, Islam is part of that same mosaic tradition coming from the time of Moses onwards. The Sabbath was set, which was Saturday. Okay? Now the shifting from Saturday to Sunday, this was not from the teachings of Jesus. This was done by the church later on. The, it's still the Sabbath. Right? So this issue of Sunday is a deviation really from the practices which were followed by Jesus himself. Now what happened is that the Sabbath had become defiled by the Jews. Jesus had come to renovate and purify the religion which had been handed down from the time of Moses and prior. And the majority of Jews rejected it. And they continued to defile the Sabbath. So when Islam came, the final form, which we believe was the same as the message of Moses and of Jesus, it chose as the major day of worship, Friday on which the Sabbath begins. Because the Sabbath begins from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday. So a portion of the Sabbath is still maintained, recognizing its origin as divine commandment from God, but shifting forward to separate from the deviations which had taken place in Judaism. Uh, I've read some of the Quran and the Bible and all 
about the women's coverage as well. There are some areas where you see women's coverage, there are some areas where you see women's coverage. Totally. Now, but the confusion comes to where if a woman is covered all the way up and your belief is that she should be, then I think the confusing part of me is are you saying that men are just a bunch of bluffy old people that look at a woman who has a jumper? That, that's got me so confused there. In the Western world, we don't see this. And then you get over here, and it's like, wow, men are Okay. I can understand the, the arms and the lower body and all, but the face and the, the gloves up to the elbow. Okay. Sure, I'll try. <laughs> One. Uh, the the covering of everything in the terms of the gloves, maybe even black socks and you know everything, right? This is not uh, the 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 compulsory recognized by the majority of schools of Islamic law. So this is why when you go out of here in most other Muslim com- countries, women cover everything except for face and hands, right? Uh, it was the tradition of the wives of the Prophet to cover everything, and uh, Muslim women who choose to go a further step are encouraged to do so. But it actually is not a compulsory principle according to the general consensus of Islamic scholars. Okay? So that issue here, you know, of the covering of the face, the gloves, I mean, this is particular to here. Okay? That's why you will find here Muslims from other countries, women from other countries who do not do so. Also, I just wanted to point out that the idea of the man, you know, being lustful towards the woman who exposes herself, I think if we look at the process from the early 1900s till today, over this 90 year period, we see a process of the undressing of the female, step by step clothes is coming off, getting shorter, you know, till we have a state now where people are wearing suits on the beach which may as well not be suits, right? This process coincides with a rise in rape. Last year they stated, the Department of uh, Criminal Justice etc. stated in America that the number of rapes, reported rapes, had crossed the 100,000 mark. And they, ex- they assume that the unreported is between 7 and 10 times that amount. And this is directly proportional with that undressing of the American female. So I don't doubt that the more you take off of a woman's clothes, is the more that you will arouse the sexual desires of males and those people who end up being in a position to act on it will act on it. And so you will find a rise in rapes and harassment along with the dress. And any North American females who have accepted Islam and there are quite a few I mean number of Muslims in North America someplace 6 million and beyond the North American females, you know, many of whom who I've talked to, have spoken about the difference between 
prior to Islam, the relationship that they had with people, and after Islam. It's just like if you saw a nun from one of the old orders. I know the modern day nun, she's wearing a mini skirt now and a little thing on her head, you know, it's changed, right? It's evolved, right? So she's in with the in crowd. But if you take from the old orders, you'll find some old orders of nuns, still some practicing in America, who cover up and look just like the Muslims, cover up completely. The respect that is given to that woman because of her covering is something, you know, which, as I said, Muslim women who, women who are North Americans who accepted Islam and changed their mode of dress to this form can speak, you know, volumes on the change in the attitude and how people dealt with them. Because when you can only deal with the person's face, in other words, you're dealing with now this person as a person, just a mind up front now, you know, one on one, but you're not dealing, you know, whilst dealing, you're checking out everything else, you know. I mean, it does affect your overall dealing to the person. You know, they talked about how when they would get on bus, people would get up. I mean, in the past, this was considered gentlemanly. I mean, today, you know, everybody's on their own. It's Dutch street, everything else. But those women covered in this fashion were still receiving this kind of treatment. So, you know, I would say that, you know, there is a correlation. But the issue of actually, you know, covering right on down is not something which is compulsory. If a woman chooses to do so, that is her right. The reason for that being that the sports women, the way that they are dressed. Yeah, okay. Let me stop you. Let me stop you Why? Why? Because the Southeast men don't touch each other? Because it's an issue of. Can, can I answer? Okay. Can I answer that? We, or Islam recognizes that human beings are human beings. The fact that a person becomes a Muslim doesn't make him somewhat different from other human beings. He still has the same desires as any other human being. And the idea of censorship, because it's censorship across the board. The Olympics is only a part of a system where magazines or... Uh, movies or these type of things to the degree that they're able are censored so that you don't see either you know kissing, sex, bed scenes etc. You know we can watch here LA Law it's over in half an hour when you watch LA Law it's an hour in the States you know there's no bed scenes all you've seen is the story just the basic story uh, this principle of censorship is to reduce the level of sexuality in the society if a man sees a woman uh, exposing her body because the, the, the dress of the Olympic athletes, you will find in the newspaper, even the male athletes, haven't you noticed when they showed pictures of Ben Johnson so-and-so running, or uh, what's his name, um, 
Carl Lewis wearing that bodysuit, which is now hugging his private parts to the point where it's just showing his private parts. They went and put some dots over it so it looks like it, there's another suit on top of it. You didn't notice this? So it's not just for the female, even for the male. If a male is dressed in a fashion, you know, which is exposing the private, this is something which is, uh, in the society as a whole, it is against the modesty of the society. So that uh, separation out is, is based on this principle. It is not because it believes that the Saudi male cannot control himself, you know, so that he should be... Pre- no, it's just a general principle of trying to lower the level of sexuality by minimizing the exposure to exposed females or even males in the society. That's the principle. Fine. I'm saying you may be an exception. You, I mean, don't judge everybody based on yourself. You know, as this is reality. It's just like violence on television. It's like violence on television. You may watch the violence and not be driven to go out and be violent. But studies have shown that with the increase in violence on television, there's an increase in violence within the home and in the society. That people are, do, are affected by what they see on the television, in the movies, etc. I mean, because, you know, this is the same thing my uncle. My uncle, who's a non-Muslim, he said the same thing to me. So why do you have to cover your wife up? I'm saying, he said, even if your wife, you know, came and had no clothes on, it would not drive me to, to want to, you know, sexually attack her or anything. I can look at her just like the way I look at a flower. You know, I look at a flower, I can appreciate the beauty, but it doesn't mean, you know, I want to attack that flower. Okay? This is what he was explaining to me. But I said to him, Uncle, you may be an exception. You know, because of the fact that if a naked woman comes before you, it doesn't move you. That is you as an exception. I'm, you know, the principle of Islamic law is for the society as a whole. It's not, it doesn't deal with the exceptions. It's the same thing like the principle of alcohol. There are people, I know, my father tells me, and I've, and I've observed him, I've never seen him drunk. He drinks a little bit of alcohol on Sunday when he was not living over here. He was over here for a while, but in America, in Canada. You know, he, that's, with this Sunday meal, he would have, you know, a small glass of alcohol. Why? He never got drunk. So he said, now why in Islam you're going to prohibit alcohol altogether? I don't get drunk. I mean, I can understand where if it gets you drunk and, you know, the, the crimes that are committed under intoxication, the accidents which happen and so on, but I'm not one of them. So why? So I explained to him the same thing. The law comes for the masses of the people. If the law stated alcohol is prohibited to those people who cannot hold their alcohol, that's not going to work. So it says right across the board. Because the general effect of intoxicants on the society is that it's devastating. So it is prohibited across the board. No, actually, besides you, he asked, put his hand up first, sorry. Yes. No, he, he had his hand up first. Okay, go ahead. Back 
Okay, I'll just uh, re- I'll rephrase the question so that the others could hear it. Our friend here was asking why here a Christian is not able to get pork to eat. He said he could understand the issue of alcohol, but why he cannot, if he wants to, in the mess hall here, have a slice of pork, you know, pork chops or whatever, you know, or if he goes to uh, the town, why he can't get it. Whereas if you go to other Muslim countries, if you go to Egypt or you go to other countries, it's possible to get, you know, a, a side of bacon, you know, whatever. Uh, the reason being here, it's not that... Pardon? Okay, I'm not saying it can be found everywhere. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying it can be found everywhere in Egypt. I'm just saying, in general, in any... The point is that the issue of a Christian... Can I... Let me just finish. For a Christian raising a pig, Islamic law does not prohibit the raising of the pig. That's what I told you. The pig himself, he is not a prohibited animal because you can find him in the zoo. Here. But it's not raised. So it is not available in the society, if you ask, they'd have to go down to the zoo and kill one of the pigs. Okay? And the general practice, because goods which are brought into the country are brought in for the consumption of the majority of the people who do not want pork products. So the products coming into the country are shielded. However, in some compounds, in some compounds, military compounds, etc., where, you know, the, it is an area, a closed area, restricted to Americans only, you can get your pork rations. You can. No, it's not here, because this is, <laughs> this is not restricted, a place of restricted access. Well, it's not really forcing a portion, right? 